Oregon football has added a number of transfers to bolster their defense next year, but one guy stands out above the rest. Here we go. You are Locked On Ducks, your daily podcast on the Oregon Ducks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, it is that time once again for Locked On Ducks. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. If you're watching on YouTube, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your number one source to stay up to date with the Ducks. Like, comment, subscribe, please, and thank you wherever you listen to or watch this show, which today is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, official sportsbook of Locked On. Make every moment more. Visit FanDuel.com slash Locked On today to get started. I'm almost all the way through the mailbag questions that I've had for quite some time. For some of them, news flies around and such, but if you want to repopulate the mailbag, by all means, YouTube comments, Twitter, whatever. This one from Nick P., a regular question asker here on the show. A question I just thought of with the defensive topic, it's a big topic, is who will be the biggest difference maker in the defense this year? The coaching additions or the players added and which ones in particular? I'm going to get to the dynamic of players and coaches in a moment. I think the answer here is Jordan Birch. A defense cannot succeed. There has never been a great defense or even a good defense, frankly, that can't put pressure on the quarterback. That opens up so many avenues for your defense. It allows your secondary to play differently. They can be a bit more aggressive. It also sometimes can make up for a member of the secondary getting beat in coverage or for the offense just having a better play call. Because the quarterback may look one way, but if pressure then comes in his face and the open guy was over there and he has to go elsewhere or he gets forced off his spot, well, suddenly the entire rhythm and timing of the play is disrupted. So Jordan Birch coming over from South Carolina, who had, I believe, 41 pressures in, in 2022, which would have ranked first or second on the Ducks. I think Dorless was somewhere in, in that ballpark as well. Having two of those guys who can at least semi-reliably be contributors in terms of creating pressure on the quarterback, getting after him, making him uncomfortable, which also takes its toll over the course of the game. Like when you see quarterbacks struggle, even good ones, right? Think Cam Rising in the Utah game this year, for instance, did not play particularly well. Oregon stuffed the run exceptionally well in that game. Cam Rising was also a little bit off, but Oregon also got some pressure on Cam Rising. Some, not a ton, but there were moments, right? Like that final interception was there because they had a free runner at him because there was pressure and it just, it, it's, it's the starting point for every great defense to disrupt what the other offense is going to do. And Jordan Birch individually is the most impactful player that Oregon has brought in this offseason on that front by a pretty significant margin. I mean, maybe Justin Jacobs from Iowa, the linebacker transfer, is a great blitzer at the second level. But you need your front four. You need to be able to get pressure with four guys rushing the quarterback if your defense is going to reach its full potential. Doesn't mean other guys don't have to play well. I mean, the loss of Christian Gonzalez is significant. The safeties, they've added new players there. We'll see how they end up performing. I think Gonzo is probably the most significant loss. And then Noah Sewell at the middle linebacker spot have to replace a lot of production and a lot of leadership there as well. I think that's a big question for the defense too going into next year. Who's the alpha 
who's the leader, who's the go-to guy? Because it was Noah Sewell for the last three years. That it, it was him across the board. If I asked you right now, and 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 that particular person, by the way, because there's a signal calling involved with what I'm talking about, it's oftentimes a linebacker, usually nowadays a member of the secondary. So like Verone McKinley fit the bill for that, or Javon Holland fit the bill for that in past years. If I told you right now who is that for Oregon next year, I don't know the answer to that question. But what I do know is that Jordan Birch has to be Oregon's best or second best pass rusher. Because the other thing with Dorless this year is he was the most consistent. I know DJ Johnson ended up with the most sacks, but I think if you look at the win rate in one-on-one situations, offensive versus defensive lineman, Dorless was better. And I think Dorless has a bigger array of pass rush moves than DJ Johnson did. So I think he's the better overall lineman. He's also more uh, well-rounded in that sense. But everybody knew that Dorless was Oregon's best player on that front. So if you have two guys that you then have to be worried about as an offense, not just one, that can win in 1v1 situations, require a double team, require a chip, that's something, frankly, Oregon hasn't had in quite a while. Kayvon Thibodeau required double and triple teams. I remember I remember that, uh, I think it was the UCLA game down in Los Angeles. He was literally triple teamed coming after the quarterback one play. They put a tight end and two offensive linemen, and they left three offensive linemen to block three other guys and said, no, we're just going to not, not let number five get to us. The last time Oregon had two pass rushers that you had to worry about, uh, that's an impromptu question that I just asked myself, and I I don't think of an immediate answer. Maybe like Jalen Jelks and Justin Hollins with those teams, like 2018? Probably. I mean, Jelks had a cup of coffee or bounced around a little bit in the NFL. Hollins, I'm pretty sure, is still in the NFL. I think he was with the Rams this year. So my, my point there is the idea of having two guys who could realistically and consistently on any play win if they're one-on-one with a lineman to get pressure on the quarterback, that's huge. That's That's absolutely huge. Now, the other part of your question here, Nick, is a really, really valid one, I think. And that's how the coaching factors into it, right? So the second party said the coaching additions or the players added and which ones in particular. Now, that Chris Hampton hire is fascinating. I, I really, I said this at the time, you might not all have heard that particular show. I would be surprised if a guy who just won a Cotton Bowl as a team, as a group of five teams, defensive coordinator, best season in program history, if that guy isn't coming in to at least be a part of the play calling or heavily involved in the scheme. So that's a component of a defense that has been missing for Oregon the last few years. They haven't had a great defensive play caller since Andy Avalos. Tim DeRuiter, the defense started to take a step back since when, when he took over. Tosh Lupoy, and then, you know, obviously Landing's a part of it as well. It did not take a step forward the way that I expected it to in 2022 and the way that I think they were, they were fully capable of. So I look at a guy like Hampton and say, did they bring him on because they want him to be more involved in this area or that area, right? He's now the co-defensive coordinator and, and safeties coach replacing Matt Pallage, who went to go be the defensive coordinator at Baylor. I think the coaching addition there 
can make a difference more than you think. But at the end of the day, you got to have the players, right? I mean, I mean, we may very well not ask any questions about Tosh Lupoy as the defensive coordinator for Oregon after this year if the defense takes a big step forward. But you can't do that unless you have the players at some point. Like, I think Andy Avalos was brilliant as Oregon's defensive coordinator. coordinator. So was Nick Aliotti. And Aliotti didn't have as many great players, but he certainly had a lot of them. But you know when Aliotti was a DC and helped get Oregon to a national championship game? 2010. And they had a lot of good players, but they were, you know, an offensively driven team. But in the national championship game, they played exceptionally well. And then 2014, a defensive line that had DeForest Buckner and Eric Armstead. And I want to talk about those two guys after I talk about FanDuel because they are the number one sports book in America. And it's the midway point in the NBA season. It's here and it's the perfect time to download FanDuel. New customers get a no sweat first bet up to one thousand dollars that's bonus bets back if your first bet doesn't win just download the FanDuel sportsbook app it's safe secure super easy to use FanDuel even lets you combine your bets for a chance at a bigger payout with the same game parlay don't miss the chance to get your no sweat first bet up to a thousand dollars back in bonus bets when you go to FanDuel.com slash locked on that's FanDuel.com slash locked on to learn more make every moment more with FanDuel an official sports betting partner of the NBA I actually think, though, I'm not convinced Dorless and Birch are on the same level as Buckner and Armstead. In fact, I'm pretty sure they're not. I think they can be similar kind of players because both guys can actually play inside or out. I mean, Buckner was on the inside. Armstead was primarily on the inside, but sometimes lined up at, at the edge position. But that's the last time Oregon probably had a great defensive line pair, like really, really good. And that defense, by the way, was quite good. We remember that season for Mariota and the Heisman and the offense and all that sort of stuff, rightfully so. But we saw what happens if your defense isn't up to a certain standard when the offense is putting up, you know, 35 to 40 points a game. That was 2022, and it ended 10 and 3, and we didn't, we didn't get to a conference championship game. So I look at Jordan Birch, and I'll wrap up my thoughts on this and move on to the next question here. I think that Birch and Dorless, while not on Buckner and Armstead's level, can be those sorts of players where you can move them around on the defensive line and they're just consistently really good high-level players. And you probably need two of them to be a truly great defense. Oregon kind of got away with that in 2019 by just having Kayvon Thibodeau, but that secondary was so good. They were ridiculously good. There was also, I can't remember, I don't think Jordan Scott was on that 2019 team. I'm actually going to look that up right now oh, geez, for the uh, for the delay. But I, let's see here. He was, he was on that team. So you had Jordan Scott as a big-time run stuffer and Kayvon Thibodeau as a big-time pass rusher. I think that's kind of what Oregon was missing in 2022 is having two high-level defensive linemen. Dorless is one. Casey Rogers is a nice player, but he's not in that category. Taimani does some good things, but he's not at that level. Jordan Riley, the same thing. Mace Funa, the same thing. So if you can have Birch and Dorless as your top two defensive line tandem, I think you're in pretty good shape. 
if they produce the way that they're capable of. And Dorless, I know what he's capable of. And Birch, hopefully he explodes because Oregon needs a high-level pass rusher, and I think he can be just that. But great question. So, uh, and then on the, on the coach's front, yes, the coaching absolutely makes a difference. But the coaching doesn't matter if you don't have players who can execute, right? Like, if you dial up a specific cover two play call as a defensive as a defensive coordinator, you need, if you're dropping seven guys in coverage, to create pressure with four. And if that doesn't happen, you can't cover forever. So I'd say the players have more of an impact than coaching. But I do, I do think that that hire is telling, and hopefully we see that play out situationally in, uh, in 2023. Next question here. Spencer, this is from Alex Wells. Spencer, what are your thoughts on the whole ACC Pac-12 merger concept of playing a cross-conference championship? Sounds kind of intriguing. I also saw something yesterday about the Pac-12 maybe going on Apple. That's perhaps a different conversation for another day, but everyone is on really thin ice. Like James Crepia was was going nuts about it on Twitter, and oh my gosh, this would be just a calamitous situation. I wouldn't like to see the Pac-12 go all streaming, but if it's streaming heavy, I, I don't know that it's completely the end of the world. World Depends on what your priorities are. Um if you want more on that, go check out Locked on, on Pac-12 because I talk about that on today's show. But this question with the ACC, it would be very fun. It'd be very exciting. A merger of the conferences is really, I mean, really unlikely to happen. I will never say something is impossible, but that would be pretty close to it. The travel that would be involved would be outrageous. And I don't think the Pac-12 presidents are in a place right now where they are looking to do a full merger with a conference. So while it would be fun, I don't think it's realistic to to have a Pac-12 ACC merger form this big super mega coastal conference and whatnot. Don't think that's coming. Here's what could happen though. And this is realistic and I would be down for if we could just get the stupid college football scheduling concept fixed is my biggest gripe with the sport. I would be down for not a merger because I don't think that's realistic. Like, are you really going to have, you know, a men's and women's tennis team travel to Florida State? Like, no, that is just the amount of increased costs there probably would not be worth the value. Plus the ACC is tied into their media deal through 2036. And it's really hard to get out of. So that would be close to impossible to pull off. However, what would not be impossible is going to the ACC and saying, hey, what if we play each other a lot in the non-conference slate, which I would be down for. College basketball figured this has figured this out much better than college football by a long shot. If you set up the football equivalent of the Big 12 ACC Challenge or the Big 10 SEC Challenge or something like that, I think it would be great. You could bolster your strength of schedule. You could get high-profile games that draw in a lot of fans from across the country, right? You, you would basically have the potential, if you set the right matchups, to go coast-to-coast coast in terms of your viewership and appeal for these individual games. 
which is what everyone's concerned about at some level going forward for the Pac-12, right? It's like, oh, are you going to get enough people to watch? Well, if you set a non-conference lineup, right, you almost made it like your own bowl season, but you did it in the non-conference portion of your schedule to begin the year in those first three weeks of college football. Think about how fun that would be. And you could say, hey, how about you have you know, your number three play our number three and your number one play our number one from uh, from the year before. A lot of different directions you could go on that front. I think that would be fantastic. I think it would be awesome. Think about this. How many people, this is where the NFL wins always. Game one of the 2022 NFL regular season was Russell Wilson playing in Seattle. That was that was week one Monday night football after all that drama. But college football, because you schedule this stuff years out, you can't set something up like that. But just imagine the spice, the appeal of a week one Oregon against Miami. Who doesn't want to play it? I mean, seriously. I know that you all would want to play it. I want to see it played. And guess what? You're trying to create a television product here that is broadly applicable to as many people as possible. I watch a lot of SEC football because they've got matchups that I care about as a college football fan. I watch the Red River Showdown in the Big 12 for years. Now they're going to be part of the SEC. I watch Ohio State and Michigan all the time. And you can draw in fans from other conferences and casual college football fans if you put not just two brands like Oregon and Miami against one another, but Mario Cristobal against his old team. I mean, come on. What are we missing here? But you could just keep going down the roster and just have a bunch of great matchups and avoid a situation if you engage in an alliance like that or a partnership like what happened to Washington. The Huskies had Ohio State bail on them for a 2024-25 home-and-home series because all this stuff gets controlled by the individual university. And Ohio State basically looked at Washington and said, "Mm, in 2024, we're already playing Texas, so we don't need to play Washington, risk another loss because the Huskies are getting better and better, and we'll go play Texas, who's going to be in the SEC by then, And they're a bigger brand. So if we're going to choose between these two games, yeah, the answer is Texas every single time. But I would love to see a reworking. If you've been listening to me for a while or watching, first of all, thank you so much. Seriously. But second of all, you know, I'm about to smoke. Some people would look back and say, oh, we shouldn't have played Georgia. Of course we should play Georgia. Why not? You want to get to the upper echelon of college football? You don't do it being scared. Go play somebody. Schedule a good game. Go beat them. I mean, yeah, Georgia was a low point. But in the last five years, that win at Ohio State is one of the biggest moments for Oregon football, 100%. Like, you're talking last five years, you know, winning the Pac-12 championship, winning the Rose Bowl. Let's see, five years, that'd go back to 2018. Probably beating Washington in 2018, recapturing momentum in that series after they'd won the last couple. Yeah, and then probably Ohio, Ohio State is in there. You could even argue Ohio State's above Washington, and that's a more you know regional appeal. So I love the thought. I love the thought 
of getting together with the ACC and saying, hey, why don't we schedule? It doesn't have to be, you know, one through 12 or one through 14. It could just be like four games. Ensure that through the first, you know, three or four or five, ensure ensure that through the first three weeks of college football in which you can have some dud games because you have buy games going on across the country, which do need to you know never go away in college sports. I will never advocate for that. Ensure that you've got one to two matchups a week of a Pac-12 and an ACC school. Opportunity for the conference to increase its pedigree by beating another Power 5 conference in the preseason slate. I think you could have a lot of fun matchups. Oregon and Florida State would be really fun. Oregon and Miami, of course. I, like just, just go up and down the list. I think it'd be great. Heck, think about, think about this. From a Pac-12 perspective, imagine scheduling Colorado with Dion and Florida State. Who's not watching that game? I'm watching. You're watching. Because if Dion were to go into Tallahassee and beat the Seminoles, and then you came on tough times as Florida State's program has at times over the last few years, you don't think they'd think about that game? And that sort of interest and intrigue, I'd be so here for it. I, I, I like where your head's at, Alex. Again, conference merger, not a realistic possibility, I don't think. But a partnership, a scheduling alliance, do it in basketball too. Do it in basketball. Why not? Have North Carolina come play Oregon or have you know UCLA, not UCLA anymore, I, I suppose, but have Arizona go play Duke. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm down. I'm about that smoke all the time. Okay, uh, speaking of basketball, I, this, this is puzzling. This is <laughs> this is really puzzling. So, Oregon basketball is in what you would call a dark place. The women have lost seven games in a row. I've never seen that from them. It's beyond bizarre. They've had leads going into the fourth quarter on several occasions, and they just can't finish games. And the men just can't score enough points. <laughs> That's what it really consistently comes down to. They are not a great shooting team. They do not score enough points. They do not hit enough threes. And I said that about them early in the year. That has come true. When they hit threes, they'll win. And when they don't, they will lose. And that trend has followed suit. Anyway, somehow, after two losses, I again, don't ask me to explain this. I'm just telling you, because it would probably surprise you to know that Oregon men's basketball is in the next four out with three games to go after back-to-back road losses to teams that are sub-500 in conference play. Don't ask me to explain it. I don't know. Here's what I do know. Somehow, some way, that means they don't have to win the conference tournament to get into the big dance, where then anything could happen, quite literally. You just got to get there. You never know. UCLA was an 11 seed. They were a play-in team. They were like team number 67 or something. They had to play to be an 11 seed, went to the final four. You never know. If Oregon can win their next three games, which are against teams that are even worse than Washington, Washington State. So hopefully they can. And two of the three are at home. I don't think they'd have to win the conference tournament at that point. They'd have to win a couple games. But if they got to the conference tournament championship game and they beat I'd have to take a look at the bracket, which I haven't right now. 
because we don't have a bracket, of course, of what it could potentially be. But let's say they could add, let's say they win their last three games, not a given. We've seen what they've done this year. Let's say they win their last three games. And then in the tournament, they beat, say, USC and Utah or Colorado and you know UCLA or Arizona or somebody. Get to the conference tournament title game and lose. That could be enough. If they are next four out, that means they're within striking distance. So I, I guess it's not conference tournament or bust. The women <laughs> have lost seven straight. They're 14 and 13. The men are 15 and 13. Are among the first four out. The women are 24th in the net rankings. I, I don't ask me to explain that one either. ESPN is even baffled by it. If you go to women's bracketology, they talk about Oregon right off the top and basically say, yeah, we have no idea what's happening here or why they are that high in the net rankings. But they could still get in and they wouldn't even have to make as much noise as the men would have to in the conference tournament in Las Vegas. The, the, the ESPN women's bracketology said, quote, a split or worse, and they won't be ha- they won't have their name called on selection Sunday. So that means if they go three and one or four and oh and start winning games again, I don't know. Crazy times, but March Madness right around the corner and or hang on by a thread, but I guess that thread hasn't been cut. I thought it had been. I thought it was conference tournament or bust for both after their struggles for the last couple of weeks. Apparently, eh, it's not the case. That's the optimism we end with today. Appreciate everyone listening. Have a wonderful rest of your day and go Ducks.